This is 94.1 KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 o'clock, and up next is Cover to Cover Open Book with guest host Nina Serrano. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Nina Serrano. Our focus today is on San Francisco writer Elaine Ellenson. Longtime listeners may remember Elaine's monthly program on civil liberties here on KPFA. Elaine will be reading today from two of her autobiographical essays. Well, welcome back, Elaine Ellenson. Thank you so much, Nina, for inviting me to be on your program. Well, it's a pleasure having you here. Elaine, can you read to us from your essay called A Lesson in American History, Riding the 14 Mission Bus? That was published in the Sunday Chronicle on July 9th of 2006. So we'd love to hear it. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Every morning, I walk down Bernal Hill to catch the 14 Mission going to downtown San Francisco. As I step on the rubber-treaded stairs and flash my muni pass at the driver, I await my lesson in U.S. history and in sociology, global economics, race relations, immigration, psychology, and fashion. Today, when the bus lurches to a halt at my stop, it is crowded with passengers, neatly dressed African-American women with sensible nurses' shoes coming off the night shift at the Jewish home for the aged, Chinese elders in padded jackets, and Filipina grandmas with pink plastic shopping bags overflowing with greens from the Pacific market. Some passengers are reading the sports section of the Chronicle, some the Chinese-language World Journal, others carry well-thumbed small black Bibles in Spanish. At Mission and Cesar Chavez Streets, the Day Laborers Board, they joke with each other in accents from the eastern Salvadoran provinces of Usulitan and Santa Ana. Heading for construction sites downtown, they wear heavy boots and paint-stained overalls. Even if there are seats left, they courteously continue to stand, arguing about football, wages, and life in the United States. At 26th Street, a gaggle of fifth graders clad in the navy blue sweaters and pleated plaid skirts of St. Elizabeth's clamor on, excited about their field trip to the Exploratorium or the Aquarium. Their names are neatly printed on white plastic-coated cards and pinned onto their jackets. Vietnamese girls with long black hair tied with neon-colored scrunchies carrying Hello Kitty lunchboxes. Twin Pham, Jeannie Leung, and Thuy Monica Fat. Their African-American classmates wear 49ers jackets over starched white shirts and pressed blue serge pants. Eric Jackson's plastic glasses keep slipping down his nose as he reads his Tron comic book. His seatmate, Kenyatta Saunders, short legs dangling over the vinyl bus seat, peers over Eric's shoulder. Oh, man, the boys point at some explosion or daring feat in the comic. Look at that, they shout, 
oblivious to the elderly Filipina manong beside them, thumbing a prayer book with a halo Jesus on the cover. Latina girls in lacy socks and patent leather shoes, Lucinda Contreras and Maria Lopez, sit together and point out the window at the merchants, hanging up pastel dresses under the awnings. Their parents came here from Mexico, El Salvador, or Guatemala. They study new math and physical education and take field trips to all the museums in the city. Maybe one had an aunt that was turned back at the border and is stuck in a maquilador in Tijuana. Their mothers send money home to brothers and sisters in Michoacán, Tegucigalpa, or a village in the mountains of San Miguel. At 24th Street, a crowd piles on at the BART station. Move to the back, move to the back, shouts the patient driver, a heavy-set African-American woman with long braids and magenta nails. A trio of homeless vets board, heading for the VA hospital. Grizzled with long, stringy hair, they carry bedrolls and take up too much space with their bony knees and smell of the streets. Their outfits, greasy dungarees and cheap quilted parkas, are accented with the colors of our different wars, the mustard and green camouflage caps of Vietnam and the black, white and gray vests from Desert Storm. Bottles of Thunderbird barely concealed in paper bags jut out of their jacket pockets. Their clothes reek of stale cigarette smoke. They take care not to bump into the little kids on a field trip. They've crossed paths before, these vets and these children, in Vietnam, El Salvador, Honduras. The bus lurches at a changing light, and a shaky vet bumps into a startled young woman in a business suit. He shouts obscenities in a slurry voice at the driver. The kids stare wide-eyed, then turn back to their comics, their Game Boys, and their Whispers. The Department of Social Services Mental Health Unit it is, is at DuBose, so all along the way, clients heading there, scared, dreaming, frantic, and fighting off demons, climb on the bus, showing a disabled person's pass to the driver, and take a seat up front, or thrash wildly through the crowd, depending on the day, their mood, and a particular madness. A woman in a red corduroy jacket, grimy sneakers, and no socks, screeches to an imaginary companion. William, why do you say that? Answer me, William, why? Why does William say that? Oh, William, she lowers her voice to a deep, seductive gurgle. I heard you. I heard what you said. A few people look around for William, and seeing no one, glance at the woman in red corduroy, then back to their newspapers, or out the steamy window at the Mission Street signs for tacos, 99-cent stores, and multilingual chiropractors. Another woman rocks back and forth in the front seat and volunteers to help the driver. You got a transfer? She asks in a monotone, her shiny black hair swinging over her face as she sways. Did you pay? Transfer? Fair? Transfer? Your fair? A vet whose matted sandy hair matches his khaki jacket stumbles onto the bus and spots a transfer on the floor. This must be my lucky day, he shouts as he waves it triumphantly over his head. Did you pay your fare? Transfer? The rocking woman intones as he passes by her seat. Sure did, he grins at her with a toothless smile. Got it right here. 16th Street, the driver calls out. Bart, 22 Fillmore. We are in the middle of the swiftly modernizing Valencia Street corridor. 
Young women with chic black helmets of hair, dark maroon lipstick, large eyeglasses and pleated miniskirts bored with their boyfriends in tailored leather jackets and Doc Martens. They're heading for the cyber workshop south of Market, balancing Fendi briefcases, cups of Macworld, and large lattes in paper cups. They chat about the up-and-down club, stock options, and how hard it is to buy a house in the city. They ignore the here-and-now drama around them, the prayers in Tagalog, girls gossiping in Spanish, and the random shouts from vets who didn't make it all the way back. What do the maroon lipstick women know of their fellow passengers, of the ones who traveled here on crowded boats from refugee camps in Thailand and Hong Kong, of the ones who fled from the massacres in El Mosote and Rio Negro, refugees from hunger in Honduras and the Philippines, of the vets who shipped out at 19, muscular and energetic, proud of their country and proud of the uniforms they now roll up for pillows, on the sidewalk in front of Mission Street, Taquerias. Van Ness, our driver calls out, City Hall, 47, Fisherman's Wharf, Caltrain. She waves to a driver going back up Mission Street. It's my stop. I climb down after the gaggle of children who line up behind their teachers heading for the main library. On the way out, the swaying woman asks, Transfer, did you pay your fare? Wow. Thank you, Elaine. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you. That was wonderful. You just heard Elaine Re- Ellenson reading from her essay, A Listen in American History, Riding the 14 Mission Bus. And that was originally published in the San Francisco Chronicle in July of 2006. Uh, it's very appropriate that you would have written that. Uh, what people may not realize is that you yourself speak five languages, is it? Well, I I do like to overhear the conversations on the bus. Yes, (laughs) and you do get to understand a lot of them. I know I've been with Elaine in restaurants where she has spoken to people in Russian, Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, and Tagalog. (laughs) Well, I know my brother um, wrote me after I sent him this essay, and he said, how did you know the name of that Chinese journal? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and how did you know what province those workers were from El Salvador? Um, and I, I have to say, I did take some poetic license with yes, this. <laughs> yes, well, because you're such a good writer. So you have also uh, written a piece about your adventures working with United Farm Workers from a uh, anthology called Cesar Chavez and the Farm Workers Movement, 1962. To 1993. I wonder if you could read us some excerpts from that. I'd love to, Nina. Um, uh, as you mentioned, this is from an anthology, and um, people who worked for the union um, in all different capacities, whether they were um, people who had gone out on strike and then started doing organizing in the cities, or people who volunteered from colleges or from the clergy, were invited to write um, different. Uh, parts of that anthology based on their own experiences. And I was actually asked to be, um, I had a very, very rare experience of being the representative of the United Farm Workers in England and in Sweden uh, during the first great boycott. And the reason for this was because the boycott had been so successful in the United States by 1969, 1970, that they started shipping grapes 
overseas to different markets that they've never used before, England and, and Scandinavia, um, even at really reduced prices, uh, to try to just dump them, to get rid of them so that would, the boycott would not seem as effective. Um, and so um, I was uh, quite young then, but I had quite an adventure, so I'll read you uh, some excerpts from that chapter. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, this is, I'm going to start with the very beginning, and then I'll, I'll do some transitions along the way. I was standing in the Union Meeting Hall in Covent Garden Market in the center of London. Outside, trucks were coming and going with tulips from Holland, tangerines from Portugal, figs from Turkey, and leafy green produce from all over the British Isles. It was foggy and cold outside, the steamy, the, and the windows were steamy. After all, it was 7 a.m. on a winter morning. The scene was straight from My Fair Lady if the play had been set in the 60s. Most of the market workers in the room had been there for several hours already. This was their lunch hour and time for a union meeting. The meeting was being led by Brother W.A. Punt, the Fruit and Vegetable Market Section Officer of the Transport and General Workers Union, TGWU. The TGWU is the largest union in Great Britain, one of the largest in Europe, whose members work in the docks, British Rail, the London Underground, trucking, auto plants, and markets. That November morning in 1968, I was the guest speaker, a representative of the United Farm Workers of America, come to talk about the grape strike and boycott. I was 21, wearing a chartreuse miniskirt, a tan wool coat, and a headscarf decorated with the red and black Union Eagle. My big plastic Marks and Spencer shopping bag was stuffed with leaflets, copies of newspaper articles, and my proudest possession, a letter from Cesar Chavez asking our European trade union brothers and sisters to extend any courtesy to me, the European UFW boycott representative. My audience was all men in thick market aprons and heavy boots. They smelled of garlic, onions, and oranges, and spoke in impenetrable Cockney accents. They wrapped their cold hands around cups of steaming tea and listened attentively as I talked about the farm workers' struggle. And then I explain, you know, what was going on in Delano. And um, after that, Brother Punt asked for a motion from the floor. A burly man in a plaid cloth cap proposed that they send a resolution to their union headquarters, to the Trade Union Congress, and that's the equivalent of the, the British equivalent of the AFL-CIO, and just for good measure to the American Embassy, seeking support for the UFW strike and boycott. They passed the hat. They put in shillings and hard-earned pound notes to support the strike fund in Delano. They took leaflets and made me promise to keep them informed about any new developments. They told me to tell my fellow UFW members that they were standing with them. And then they insisted I have a pint with them at the pub downstairs. It was their usual post-meeting ritual, but since it was only nine in the morning, I politely refused and headed for the Covent Garden Underground Station. I took the tube back to my flat in North London. I was living on the third floor of an old row house on Tollington Road, sharing a flat with three graduate students at the University of London. The place was run down and damp. When it rained, the kitchen floor was crowded with buckets and bowls to catch the leaks, and the whole flat was heated by a rickety gas stove that had to be constantly fed shillings. I was always cold. 
The only payphone, the only phone was a payphone in the hallway on the bottom floor of the house. It was right outside the door of a gypsy family, Madame Ruby and her four sons, whom I had to compete with to make the long-distance call. Still wrapped in my coat, scarves, and mittens, I grabbed a handful of six-penny coins and my notebook and headed for the phone. I called the boycott coordinator in Delano with the good news from Covent Garden. And um, that first meeting uh, with the Covent Garden market workers went on to expand to meetings where I spoke to students and where I spoke to dock workers and um, uh, all different kinds of trade unionists who were just so generous in their support to the United Farm Workers. They really understood what that was about. Can I interject here yes. for the young listeners yes. that... When you're saying Delano, you mean Delano, California. Thank you. And that what was going on, or maybe you should tell what was going on then for our younger listeners. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, this was part of the historic grape strike. So farm workers um, were the only workers in this country, um, well, actually in addition to domestic workers, who were not covered by the National Labor Relations Act, which meant that farm workers in the fields, um, and especially in the huge agribusiness fields in California, um, suffered some of the worst working conditions. There were children in the fields. Um, there was no overtime li- uh, pay. In fact, no overtime limit. Sometimes people had to work 12 hours uh, straight. Uh, there were no toilets in the fields. The housing conditions, because people had to move from crop to crop, were the the most poverty-stricken in the United States, and people lived in labor camps. And in 1965, um, Two fledgling unions came together, a Filipino union and a, and a Mexican-American union, and joined together to become the United Farm Workers Union and called a strike in one of the most uh, profitable crops, the grape uh, crop, which brought multi-millions to grape growers in California. And they went on strike um, with practically nothing in the bank except, you know, their heart and their spirit and their courage and their willingness to reach out to the rest of the country. Um, when the growers brought in scabs, uh, the head of the union, who was Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and other leaders of the union, uh, hit upon a new tactic, which was the grape boycott. So if the grapes were going to be picked and sent out to the markets and the cities, they weren't going to be bought. And people from all walks of life, uh, consumers of, you know, of all walks of life, uh, refused to buy the grapes. And so that's where you came in as the organizer to spread the boycott to Europe, where they were dumping the grapes. That's right. Okay, and so we got a lot of support uh, from the trade unions, especially the dock workers unions who um, wouldn't unload the grapes, and um, that led to the next chapter here. Okay, one morning I heard the persistent ring of the payphone downstairs. I ran down the three flights of stairs, and I heard an official-sounding American voice ask for me. It was the secretary of the labor attaché at the U.S. Embassy. He wondered if I could come in for a chat. The plush, warm, well-furnished salon of the U.S. Embassy on Grosvenor Square was a contrast to my usual meeting places in union halls, pubs, and working-class living rooms. The labor attaché offered me coffee, not tea or beer, and asked to describe my work. He wanted to know if the official AFL-CIO had endorsed me. He was cordial, but obviously had an agenda. 
Then, after the coffee, he pulled out a letter typed on the Transport and General Workers Union stationery marked Fruit and Vegetable Markets section and asked me to read it. It was from W.A. Punt, and this is what he wrote. I am the secretary of the London Fruit and Vegetable Markets Committee, which covers Brentford, Borough Spitalfield, Stratford King's Cross, and Covent Garden. A UFW representative addressed our market committee and gave us a picture of the agricultural industry of America with reference to the situation in California. The revelation that a system of bond slavery should exist was so shocking as to spontaneously spark off a decision to completely ban American produce in the London market. However, I prevailed upon them to permit me to make overtures to your embassy. Our delegates are appalled that in this year of 1968, when your country is contemplating putting men on the moon, sections of the community are denied the elementary rights as contained in the United Nations Charter, and the millions of dollars which are expended to portray America as the bastion of democracy caused some delegates so as to make an analogy of the late Dr. Goebbels and Adolf Hitler's Germany in respect of these workers. Whilst these analogies may be incorrect, I mention them to illustrate the feelings of our members and request that you do all you can to help settle this strike. I smiled to myself. The Covent Garden market workers had made good on their promise of support, but I gasped when I read Brother Punt's closing line. In anticipation of your cooperation and in hope that the members of our organization are not obliged to use their industrial strength to assist their American brothers and sisters. He was threatening an all-out strike. I wondered if the General Secretary of the Transport and General Workers Union knew that the Market Workers Union were threatening the U.S. Embassy to use their industrial strength to assist the United Farm Workers. I was going to be in hot water if if he did. Um, So uh, I didn't have time to actually worry about that because I got a letter or I got a phone call from the union uh, telling me that their supporters in the American Longshore Workers Union, the ILWU, had sent them a notice that these grapes were actually going to be sent to Sweden and they told me to pack up and, and go off to Sweden to try to stop the grapes there. So I threw on my warmest socks and sweaters in a bag, bundled up a big batch of UFW literature, bought a pocket Swedish dictionary and a second-class ticket to Stockholm. The trip by bus, train, and ferry took 48 hours. It was January, and a heavy snow blanketed the Swedish landscape. The Swedish unions were even more anxious to help, if that was possible, than the British. The Swedish economy at that time was much more prosperous, and the unions had won contracts for health care, pensions, education fund, and job security that were the envy of Europe. The trade unions had tremendous resources and took international solidarity, whether for peace in Vietnam, ending apartheid in South Africa, or the Californians striking farm workers very seriously. The campaign in England had taken months to get off the ground, but now we didn't have the luxury of time. We only had a few weeks before the grapes were to arrive. The Swedish unions quickly organized support. The first shipment was due in the southern port of Malmö, and I quickly took the train there, wearing a brand new pair of reindeer skin boots, courtesy of the Swedish Farm Workers Union. A shop steward at Malmö took me to the dock where the ship with the grapes had arrived. 
He introduced me, and I spoke in faltering Swedish to a crowd of dock workers. Although I couldn't tell you the time or ask for a loaf of bread in Swedish, I knew the words for farm workers, strike, boycott, and solidarity. The lading crew said that they would not unload the grapes. Someone called the local press, and soon the harbor was filled with trade unionists, port officials, reporters, and TV cameras. The captain of the ship stood on the bow of his ship and announced that there were no grapes in the hold. He claimed that they had all been unloaded in London. We knew this wasn't true because of the information we had from the longshoremen in America, but how could we prove it? The shop steward took the manifest and told the captain and the reporters, "We knew the grapes are in this hold, in these refrigerated containers." The captain again denied it. The shop steward said, "Well, then we're going to go on the ship, and you're going to show us there are no grapes in there." According to their union contract, the captain could not refuse the shop steward access to the vessel, but he wouldn't allow me on with them. The dock workers grew angry and said, "If I were not allowed on the ship," They would boycott the whole cargo, not just the grapes. It was a showdown, and the media was covering it live. We milled about for hours. The sky darkened, and it began to snow. The dock workers' families brought out steaming coffee and hot bread. The newscasts began to cut in footage from a Swedish film about the farm workers that had been shot a few years before in Delano. The film showed the squalid condition of the labor camps, contrasted with the vibrant flags, songs, and huelga cries on the picket lines. Finally, late that night, under the scrutiny of the television cameras, the captain allowed us all on the ship, with the manifesto from the ILWU, the longshoremen in hand, and the Swedish dock workers' knowledge of the ship's layout. We immediately found the grapes. The ship was supposed to sail to Norway after Malmo. But we received a telegram from the Norwegian dock workers, saying that they had seen the news reports about the boycott and what happened, and they too were not going to unload the grapes. The ships finally sailed on to Hamburg, Germany, grapes still in the hold, getting more rotten by the day. The TV news that night showed a cheering crowd of Swedish trade unionists and the captain hiding his face from the cameras as he embarked on his cargo vessel. Wow, what a triumph! It was. It was a great act of solidarity. It was great. And then, how did it end? Well,、um, it ended、uh, when this grape season was over. And、uh, actually, I just have one paragraph here, if、yeah. I could read, of when I went back to Delano and I was asked to speak at the the meeting to tell people what happened. And、um, and here's how that went.、Uh, that night, I was to make a presentation at the Friday night meeting in Filipino Hall. The El Malcriado staff, that was the newspaper staff, took me under their wing, and I sat at a long table with them, eating fresh tortillas, rice and beans flavored with hot salsa. I was so excited to be there, but my stage fright increased as farm workers streamed into the hall from Early Mart, Visalia, Madera, and Merced. There were also caravans of supporters from the ILWU in San Francisco and San Pedro. Brown berets from Los Angeles, the Carpenters Union from Oakland, and the AFSC from Fresno. By the time Caesar introduced me, my hands were sweating and I was shaking. He asked the crowd to greet me with the farmworker clap and cries of "Viva la huelga." I told the story of how the British dock workers and market porters refused to handle the grapes because there was quote, "blood on the vines." I explained how the Swedish longshoremen stayed out in the snow all night, waiting to inspect the hold of the ship so they could support the United Farmworkers' strike.
I told about the newspaper stories that were written in Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish, the money that was collected to aid the strike fund, the messages of solidarity that were sent in telegrams, resolutions, and resounding speeches. My short talk was punctuated with spontaneous cries of Viva la Causa and Viva el Boicoteo Internacional. Viva la Causa. Well, thank you so much, Elaine Ellenson. Um, I think people could actually see this book at a certain website. Is that www.unitedfarmworker.org? dot org. Oh, I've got it totally wrong. Would you say it again? Okay. www.farmworkermovement.org. Oh, thank you so much. And the whole anthology is there. So I hope people will visit and hear the many, many stories that, you know, compiled this wonderful movement, the United Farm Workers Movement. And it's still a wonderful movement today. Speaking of today, Elaine, what kinds of things are you writing now? Well, um, funny you should ask, Nina, because, uh, KPFA is actually just down the block from Heyday Books, and I'm actually working on uh, a history of civil liberties in California um, starting from 1850 to the present that's going to be published by Heyday Books. I'm working with my co-author, Stan Yogi. We both worked at the ACLU for a long time, and the this book is going to be very different because it's going to be told from the voices of the, the miners, the poets, the suffrage movement, people, um, and all of those whose voices we never hear from when we think about how civil liberties were shaped in this country. And I'm, I'm working hard on it now. We hope it'll be out next year. Tell us the title again so we know to look forward to it. Well, it's, um, it's uh, called The History of Civil Liberties in California from um, 1850 to the present from the miners, suffragists, poets, and activists who shaped them. And it's going to be published by Heyday Press. Well, thank you, Elaine Ellenson, and thanks to Yvette uh, for engineering. This has been Nina Serrano for Open Book. Thank you for listening, and have a very wonderful day.